Well, once again, what a delight to be with you, and uh, it's been a, a really delightful weekend for me, and I appreciate it so much. Uh, you have a set of notes, I believe, and I have them on the screen behind me, but uh, we come to uh, uh, what I say, that what we can know from the Gospels about Jesus and his family, and specifically the relationship of Jesus to his family during the years of his ministry, and as I say on the sheet, what I've tried to do, and there are other, other uh, incidents to which we might appeal, but I've tried to tease out those places in the four Gospels. And those four Gospels are written to provide a bi biography of Jesus Christ. Uh, God intended that. I think the Gospel writers were very intentional about it. Each one is written to a specific audience, and by the superintendence of the Spirit of God, each one is addressing a certain set of issues or, or responding to some sort of question or crisis, but by the same token, uh, they are building on one another very intentionally. Matthew, then I would say Luke was written in Mark. Uh, take me a while to explain how I understand Mark, but, but uh, and then of course John written late. But at any rate, as you put those four Gospels together, now let me, let me just mention, and I have a I have a, a, a Dropbox with these notes and some other notes and, and, uh, and then I have an, a, a lot of other material about the life of Jesus and so on. And if you'd like to access that Dropbox and use that material, you are welcome to it, all right? So I'll put this back up here if you remind me when I'm done. But uh, again, all you do is go and it's, it's, I always say, it's material on the life of Jesus and uh, I'm sure there's better stuff on the life of Jesus but I can't give that away. But this I can, it's my stuff, so it's yours, and uh, any use to which you can put it, help yourself. But one uh, document that you'll find there is, number one, uh, I thought I'd just mention, a, a survey of the, of the life and mini of, of the ministry, a chronological survey. And what I've tried to do here, and, and you know there is a, a, what I think is a really seriously mistaken uh, set of ideas today in the evangelical world, in our world, which insists that we shouldn't try and reconstruct the life of Jesus. We should just take individual pericopes or events or uh, uh, passages and treat them as standalone, and that's not a w the way a life is lived. And in this chart, I've tried to pick up something of the, the emphases and the flow and the purposes of Jesus and so on. I'll not spend any time with it, but... Uh, and then there's also a page, and I, I, uh, I, I'll just, I'm not going to do anything with this, except we're going to re return to it in a little bit. But I call it somewhat hubristically, perhaps. I, you know, I, I think they're important, but 10 important insights basic to a proper understanding of the life of Christ. And as I taught the life of Jesus over the years in churches and seminaries and so on, uh, it just it began to occur to me that there are certain uh, insights, certain elements of the narrative which are very easy to overlook and really important. And so I just tried to reduce those quite simply. And there's an expanded edition of this in that, in that, uh, uh, in that, in that Dropbox. But having said that, what I've tried to do is take the three-and-a-half-year ministry, and as I said this morning, as a matter of fact, let's pick it up. Uh, Jesus, in fact, uh, and I mentioned this, but Jesus... Uh, lives for 30 years there in Nazareth for 18 of those years. He is, first of all, an apprentice, and then I'm sure a, a master stonemason, and I think very possibly he was uh, uh, very much involved in apprenticing his half-brothers. And, uh, and I think very possibly he 
we talked this morning about uh, the, the, the marriage, uh, uh, what a marriage looked like in the, in the Jewish world, and that it involved the family going to the judge with the betro- to, for the betrothal, and very possibly Jesus was, played that role in the, in, in the lives of his sisters. Uh, it seems that his sisters are probably married by the time, I won't get into that, but in, in Matthew 13, I was talking before, but in Matthew 13, the Nazarenes say, and this is late into Jesus' ministry, uh, but they say, uh, uh, who is this? When he comes back to Nazareth, is this not Joseph's son? Uh, we know his brothers, and it names his brothers, and we have his sisters with us. As if Jesus, having moved to Capernaum, his sisters stayed behind, perhaps because they had married. All right. So at any rate, Jesus does, in fact, labor for those 30 years, live for those 30 years, labor for those 18 years, live a life that includes all of the dynamics that uh, your life and mine I- I include. But then comes the day, and I, I, again, I'm repeating myself, forgive me, but uh, there's an echo in the room, but uh, I, I mentioned that, that I think it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, it's uh, disconcerting to, it, it just makes the whole narrative difficult to make Jesus' baptism a public act, the first act, as if he went to be baptized. Every indication is that Jesus, again, just waiting on the time of the Father, hears that John the Baptist is, in fact, calling upon those who believe that the kingdom is soon to appear to come and submit to that baptism. I'd love to talk to you about it. There is this remarkable phenomenon in Israel today called a mikvah, a ritual bath, And uh, we don't know exactly how it happened, but somewhere in the intertestamental period, the Jews began everywhere to to dig these very special ritual baths and then to to immerse themselves sometimes several times a day. And and, and it was all about a, 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 a ritual purification before you approach God, before they'd go to a meal because they were going to say a prayer. They would, uh, they would uh, uh, go to the mikvah. And uh, before you go to the temple, you had to have a token to show you the men of the mikvah, the pool of Siloam, that huge pool at the base of the Central Valley was a mikvah. Now, my point is simply that uh, the Jews understood, and I think they understood it out of Leviticus 1 to 7, a set of sacrifices which were provided for ritual purification. And I think very possibly the connection is this, that John the Baptist is demanding that you come and be immersed there in the River Jordan as sort of a ritual purification. Generally, you did it because you were going to approach God in prayer, at a meal, at, a, at the service, and so on, at the synagogue, and so on, or the temple. In John's case, he demanded that it, you, you submit to it because God was about to approach you, that, that the Messiah was about to appear and so I think Jesus goes in all innocence. I mean, not in moral innocence, but he doesn't have any ulterior motives. He simply goes to be baptized. And uh, as he comes up out of the waters, as I say, he is, as Mark says, the Spirit of God forced him into the wilderness. And uh, I like to refer to this as his wilderness experience because he's going to be there for those 40 days where he did eat nothing. And uh, now, by the way, this is, pertains as long as I'm telling this story. Remember that Mary is back there in Nazareth. And I rather expect that Jesus perhaps kissed her on the cheek, as it were, and said, I'm going to be baptized. I should be back in just a few days. But now he goes, and the Spirit of God forces him into the wilderness. 
She doesn't know where he is, and I'll tell you who else doesn't know where he is, is John the Baptist. Because if you carefully trace the message of John the Baptist, there are actually three stages. For many months, or we don't know how long, to be honest with you, but for several weeks and probably several months, his, his message is, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come and repent and be baptized. Ah, but now Jesus comes, and you have that marvelous scene, and John is reluctant, but Jesus says, no, this is the right thing to do. And so Jesus, and now John watches as the Spirit descends. He hears the voice from heaven, and then Jesus leaves. Now, we know where he went. John didn't know. So he goes into the Jeshimon, the wilderness, and that's an area alongside the Dead Sea, which is produced by the hot eastern winds that blow off the desert for six months a year across the surface of the saline-saturated Dead Sea, and they just bake the cliff on the far side, and that's called the Jeshimon, the wilderness. It's just very proximate to Jerusalem. It's just a few miles away, but it's very, very desolate, and Jesus goes there, and for 40 days he fasts. It's interesting that... It seems to be quite deliberate that in the temptation of the first Adam, Genesis chapter 3, God was careful to surround Adam with every conceivable advantage. Every longing, every need he had was fully satisfied. In the temptation of the last Adam, if you don't mind, of Jesus in Matthew and, and, and Luke, it's mentioned in Mark, but as it's described, God, is, God puts him at every conceivable disadvantage, physically He's at the end of a 40-day fast. He's bar barely alive. And, uh, and, of course, it's a miserable hot. When you ha hate to be in a place that's miserable hot. But, but uh, no, this is even hotter. But he's there, all, and he's all by himself. And, and, and now the devil comes. And, 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 of course, this is God lifting the hedge. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, I like it, says that if, if Satan could have got out of this, he probably would have. It wasn't as he, he wondered. But, but the fact is that... That, that Satan, as it were, pulls up the heavy artillery and Jesus is carefully tempted at every satanic stage, all the, all the tools that Satan has in his, in his toolbox. And, of course, he resists temptation simply by depending on the Scripture, not just by quoting Scripture. The Scripture is not some sort of magic talent, you know, some cross you wave in front of a vampire or something. The point is that you determine to obey what the Scripture says rather than submitting to what you are being tempted to do. And, and he appeals to the Scripture. He knows the Scripture. And, uh, and therefore, he, he survives that temptation. And then, again, for several weeks, I'm sure how uh, angels come. And again, angels cannot do miracles. They can't speak him into health. And as I said to you before, I think if it were anybody else, Jesus might have spoken him into health, but Jesus didn't do that because you can't do that. He came to live your life before you. And so for several weeks, he recuperates. And uh, I like to think, and now my imagination is getting away with me, but uh, because what's going to happen is that when he, well, let's go to, let me take you to John chapter 2. Do you have anything else planned for this evening? <laughs> Be careful. But in John chapter 2, uh, now I'm, I'm going to stop in, actually John 1. We've got to go to John 1, verse 29. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish a thought. i got a thought dangling out there, and I want to go back and get it. And that is John's message. Because John the Baptist. We've got two Johns going on here. We've got the guy who authored the gospel. That's a different guy, but John the Baptist uh, for months, his message has been the kingdom of heaven is about to burst in. It's uh, at hand. But now Jesus comes, 
and is baptized. And it's only mentioned a couple of times. But after that, John's message is this. Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, what he's saying is he's here somewhere. I don't know, but I know he's here because I baptized him. I watched the spirit. I heard the, the voice and so on. And so now his, his message, as I say, is the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's here somewhere. And then comes the day, John 1, where he sees Jesus emerging from the wilderness. And now his message, John the Baptist's message becomes, don't follow me, follow him. Now, I, I shouldn't stop at all on John the Baptist. He's one of my greatest heroes. I, I, I just so honor uh, as he's represented in Scripture. But to go back to it, what happens then is, are you with me? So Jesus has been in that wilderness for three or four months. And, uh, and, and now he emerges. And John gives us the first five days of Jesus' public ministry. It's really fascinating. John's writing late. He was an eyewitness, an early eyewitness. But, but he knows you've got the synoptics, and they give you generally, but, but he's supplementing. And so he gives us the first five days of Jesus' public ministry. Again, I'm saying his public ministry should be conceived as happening the first time he's announced to the public, and that's John 1.29. So, John 1.29, I'm not going to spend time with this, but it says the next day. The next day after what? The next day after John just, what, what the gospel just talked about, and that is the time when John the Baptist was interrogated by the Sanhedrin committee. So there is such genius in John ministering down in the Jordan Rift, which is desolate and hard to get to and harder to get out of and, and the deepest spot in the face of the earth. And, and he manages to stay beneath the radar, both Roman and Jewish. But all the excitement around John's ministry, it finally gets to the Sanhedrinists and they've had enough of it, so they send a committee down and you have the interrogation of John 1, 19 to 28. And then it says the next day. So that's the point of reference. That's the, 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 for what it's worth. But notice it says the next day John saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And I don't think John, oh, look at there. I think he's jumping around and tearing his hair. And this is, oh, that's how I've been looking for him. That's the one right there. Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about what goes on here. But then look at verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples he saw Jesus, this is probably Andrew and John, and, uh, and he says, don't follow me, follow them. I think this is the pattern of what he's going to do for several weeks, John the Baptist. So that's the next day. Then go to verse 43. It says the following day. So we have three hard chronological references. This, the next day, the next day, the next day. And, uh, and that's when Jesus, uh, of course, finds Nathaniel. But then he says, we need to go to Galilee. I need to go to uh, uh, up, up to Galilee, and I need, and, and uh, all right, here it is right here. He says, uh, I can't find it, but anyway, he, he, it's John who says it. Yeah, there it is right there, verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. Now, why did he want to go to Galilee? For a wedding, clearly. He's going to Cana to a wedding, and as I say, that wedding is clearly a family wedding. Now, let me just finish my thought here. So John 1.29 is the first of our five days. It's referenced from the interrogation. The second day is when he sends Peter and uh, Andrew and John to follow Jesus. The third day is when he says, the following day, he sets out for Galilee. Now, it's a three-day trip from where he is up to Galilee. And so chapter 2, verse 1 says, on the third day. 
That's the third day after verse 43. Does that make sense? So he set out, took him three days to get up there, and when he gets there, he comes to a wedding. And this is where I want to stop. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. All right, now that's, that, that, that is, I mean, we're thinking they got little nice cards with a little bow on them in the mail and so on. No, the fact is, what that means is that it was perfectly appropriate for Jesus to bring his disciples with him to the wedding. So he's got a, a small number of his disciples. Now, these disciples uh, are, are in a little while going to be, well, a few months, they're going to become the apostles. But at this point, they are disciples. They're attaching themselves to him. And uh, so they come to the wedding. And you know the story. I'm not gonna, I, I, wanna, I want us to focus on, on verse 4 and, and this moment of leave-taking. But let me just suggest something. I, uh, and, and here I'm, you know, my imagination is running a bit wild. But I just wonder if maybe as Jesus was in fact being nursed back to health by that angelic band, and they had been, you know, getting him something to eat and, you know, all that he needed, and he was little by little nursed back to health. And I have in my head this, I, I imagine the scene where, where Jesus says to the angels, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm ready to go. And maybe they say, Ah, you're not looking too good yet. And by the way, this is a big by the way, forgive me, but in that passage in John chapter 1 where Peter, and, uh, I'm sorry, Andrew, John the Baptist says, don't follow me, follow him, and it says that Andrew, and John, it mentions Andrew, but it's probably the other one is John, and they go tra chasing after him, and the Bible says that they caught up with him and he turned and looked on them. And they said, it's right here, I should go back, it's right here. They, they turned and looked on him. And uh, so the two disciples, I'll start in verse 35. John stood, John the Baptist now, with two of his disciples. He saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they pursued Jesus. That's the word. They tried to catch up and they pursued Jesus. And Jesus turned and seeing them said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, where are you staying? Now listen, I'm, again, <laughs> I wouldn't press this on anybody, but that seems to me to be a strange question. I mean, you've been waiting, you and your people, for thousands of years, and John the Baptist has been announcing him, and there he is, and the first question you want to ask him is, hey, where are you staying? Now, he says, come and see, and they spend time with him. I suspect that when Jesus turned, because John makes a big deal of it in the gospel, when he turned, they were a little surprised at what he looked like. Because he is almost certainly still, how long does it take you to fully recover from a 40-day fast? You know, they always say the outside limit of human life, absent food, is what they always say, six weeks, 42 days, I don't know, but 40 days. And so I wonder if he's not still bearing some of that. And I mention it only because I think, I think very possibly his mother would have seen the same thing. But I'll come back to that. I just wonder if, I'm back to my scene, that, that Jesus in the wilderness with the angels, I think I'm ready to go, and they're thinking, you know, you're not looking all that good, maybe a little longer. And I wonder if Jesus didn't say, no, I'm going to go because you know what? There's a wedding. And if I don't show up, mom is going to be so upset. Honest to goodness, that, that would have been a part of this. You get to a family wedding, 
And Jesus was the head of this family. So I think maybe Jesus had made perhaps a special effort. And I think that's perhaps what's behind. Now we come to the story itself. And you know, and it's quite told quite simply here in John chapter 2, there was a wedding in Cana and, and, and his disciples uh, were with him. And, and I think John emphasizes that. Well, I'll come to it. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now listen, uh, I am persuaded. I don't think there's any other. I've never seen another rational explanation. It makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, I think Mary is asking for a miracle. I really do. Now, now uh, uh, there are a lot of conjectures as to why Mary comes to Jesus. But, uh, and one of them that is, I find several times is that Mary was a bit upset because Jesus brought all of his wine-bibbing friends and they all drank up the wine, so you got to go do something about it. I don't think that's what's at stake here. But, but uh, uh, I think very possibly, because think about it. Does it make sense to think that Mary is asking? Well, now, remember, she knows he is the Messiah. Furthermore, and I think she's been waiting patiently and expectantly, but with a little confusion. When is this going to start? Secondly, he kissed her on the cheek and said, I'm going off to be baptized. This is the first time she sees him since he went to be baptized. So he's been gone for several weeks. And she, now, thirdly, Mary is a fabulous student of the Hebrew scriptures. She, really stunning. We know that from her Magnificat. She really understood. I mean, it's, it's really something. She was a student and a devotee of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, the, the ministry and the reign of Messiah when he comes is, is, explained in great de is, is described in great detail. And one of the dynamics, and one of the favorite dynamics is in the kingdom under Messiah, everybody will dwell under his what? Remember? Remember? Under his vine and his fig tree. And this is sort of the, in that bucolic uh, pastoral uh, culture, this is sort of the epitome of relaxation and delight and satisfaction to uh, have the vine fully bearing the grapes. So uh, the, the Messiah is going to produce a plentitude of grapes and thus wine. Does that make sense to you? And I'll tell you something else that I think is huge, and Mary would have seen this, and that is Jesus, her son, now shows up with disciples. And disciples are the calling card of a rabbi. And so I think very possibly Mary astutely and lovingly and respectfully comes to her son and, and says, could you do something about the wine? That's what she says. It seems, it's not just an item of information. Clearly, she is asking for help. And I think very possibly she's asking Jesus for a miracle. And uh, the other element of the story that persuades me of that is the way Jesus responds. He seems to be hearing her asking for a miracle. Does that make sense to you? Can you live with that? <laughs> now, what I want you to see, and remember our focus is Jesus' interaction with his family. And this is one of the most absolutely delightful and winsome moments in, in the Gospels. Because what you have here, I call it a moment of leave-taking. And, and Jesus so carefully, so lovingly makes it known to his mother. And, and don't you suppose everything Mary had ever asked of Jesus, he had been quick to do, and, 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 but he can't do it at her bidding. And the terminology is a little difficult. 
So let me just walk you through it real quickly. First of all, he says woman. And the, 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 the term that he uses here, the term of address, is every bit as impersonal in the Greek as it sounds in the, in the English. And it's, it's certainly not her, a term of endearment, and it's not what he, he, he normally would have, have, have the, the, uh, used to refer to her. But here's the point. What is he being, oh, here, what's the other time he calls her woman in the record? It's from the cross. In both cases, what is he being careful not to say? See the point? Mother. He's trying to make the point that the relationship that they have known, now on the cross, we'll talk about it a little later in just a few minutes, but here is going to change. And then he says, and the, I got the new King James, what does your concern have to do with me? It seems horribly, horribly, uh, almost certainly abrupt, if not, if not unfeeling. And in the old King James, and I like this because it more immediately reflects the, the Greek, which is really Hebrew, by the way. That is, it's a Hebrew expression. But what he says is, what do you have to do with me? And this is an expression that's used about 30 times in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And, and it always means, it's, it's, not, it's not rude, it's not, it's not uh, unfeeling, but it's, the, the meaning is you need to, we need to think more carefully about the relationship between us. We need to, that's really what it means. I'll tell you where it's normally said in the New Testament is the demons to Jesus. Remember that? It's exactly the same phrase. And they're saying, wait a minute, we know we're doomed, but not now, right? We've got to think about this. And, and, and that's, that's the exact, I mean, it's not the exact same thing, but I think that's the same meaning here. So Jesus is simply saying, uh, what does your concern, I, I, what he is saying is we need to rethink, uh, things are, are going to change. We need to, to rethink the, our relationship as mother and son. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, folks, forgive me. I may get after somebody, but I'm doing it <laughs> deliberately. Folks, some people, you know, this is narrative. And when you're reading biblical narrative, both Old and New Testament, celebrate the mundane. And some people think, well, Jesus is talking about the hour of his death. Well, that would make no sense, whatever. Mary would not hear him saying that. It doesn't, has no, she has no idea he's going to die. So, and, and all he means is, my, I, my hour to do what you are asking me to do has not yet come. I can't do it at your behest. And Mary, I think, really, with such grace and maturity, accepts, accepts it. And I think in her heart, she knew that it was going to change once he embraced his messianic and embarked on his messianic mystery. She steps back and says to the servants, you do as exactly and so. And I have to believe that between the time when he said, my hour has not yet come, and the time when he did the miracle, his hour came, for heaven's sakes. It was time to do the miracle, and it was because of the, the direction. I've talked to you a lot about this. I'm not going to get into it here, but, but uh, Jesus was absolutely dependent upon the direction and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So now the Spirit of God directs him, and he, he does this marvelous miracle. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time with the miracle, but all I'm after here this evening is it's a marvelous story, but all I'm after is this interchange between Mary and, and Jesus at the, at the very, very beginning of his public ministry. And, uh, and I'll tell you something else, too. I think this exchange here at the, at the wedding is good evidence that Jesus 
when he went to be baptized, he did not have an ulterior motive. He was not setting out. He was doing it in all innocence. I say innocence. You know what I mean by that? He just, this is the right thing. As a matter of fact, if you want to ask why Jesus went to be baptized by John, there are two places where Jesus himself answers it. In the first place, when John asked, Jesus simply says, this is the right thing to do. Why did Jesus go to be This is the right thing to do. And then in that exchange that I mentioned earlier on Tuesday, the Passion Week, when the Sadducees ask by what authority to do these things, and Jesus says, the baptism of John, was it of heaven or of men? What's the answer? It was of heaven, and, Je and Jesus knew it. So he went, I think, just to be baptized, and, and, and the Father sees that moment for the Spirit to fall. And, then, and, and my point is, if Jesus had packed his bag and said, okay, Mom, I'm starting out on my messianic ministry, you know, I won't be around very much, then he'd had this conversation back there in Nazareth. Does that make sense to you? The fact that he has it here, does that make sense? It's kind of thick, but... All right, well, let me take you back to the notes. I'm going to... Uh, the, 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 the second uh, passage to which I appeal, uh, and there are some other notes. Uh, you know what? Let, let me stop on something. Uh, on your sheet here, 4B, uh, it is while he is here at Cana for the wedding that Jesus does, in fact, move his family to Capernaum. And, and that is such a big issue to me. I want to stop. Well, it's here in John 2 and verse 12, and it simply says, oh, so much more to talk about with, the, with regard to the miracle itself. But he says, after this, John says, John the apostle, the gospelist, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother his, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now you have this same thing in Matthew 4 and verse 13. Now it doesn't connect it to the, to the Cana and so on, but at the beginning of the uh, Galilean ministry, Matthew simply says, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Now, of course, Matthew is going to connect it to a prophecy in Matthew about the, and Isaiah about the light shining first in Zebulon. But uh, on your sheet, I make the point, and, and I don't know, I'd like to stop on it just quickly, that there is, there, you know, I've said to you before that uh, Jesus lived a real life, and he had to be clever. He had to be wise as a serpent, and he was. And as I said... Nazareth was evidently a lovely place for Jesus to be, be uh, uh, reared and so on, but it was a entirely ill-suited to, to, to be the headquarters for an itinerant ministry. And by the way, Galilee in Jesus' day was densely, densely populated by Jewish people. And, and I'm going to say again, Jesus' responsibility was to make the case for that generation of Jews there in the land that he was Messiah, God come in the flesh, and to vindicate his right to make that claim by doing miracles everywhere he went. And this is a gargantuan task, and, and Luke has three different, they're sometimes called the missionary journeys of Paul, because, because Luke has him setting out from Capernaum and going out, and, 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 and I'll say again, I don't think this could happen by proxy. It couldn't be other people. Now, I know he's going to send out 12 two by two, but if you look at the same strategy in Luke chapter 10, you discover that, in point of fact, they were front men. They were going to alert. Okay, real quickly. Jesus has to saturate the land with his claims. As he begins to do that, anger and resistance begins to mount in, among his enemies. And he gets to the place where he knows his time is short, 
because his enemies are getting so much influence. And so he picks 12 and gives them miracle-working power, and he sends them out, and I, as I see it, and this is, is uh, you have the same thing happening in Judea in Luke 10, and there it's explicit, Luke 11, I'm sorry, Luke 11, and there it's explicit that he sent them out to every place where he soon would come. So it seems like Jesus, knowing that the time was short, knowing that he had, and he couldn't get to every single village, he sent the disciples out, and they would go out two by two, and they would perhaps come to this or that region and say, now next Tuesday, Jesus is going to be in that town right over there, and you want to see him. And of course, everybody wants to see him. There's nothing else going on right now. And, and so and, and to actually expedite, and I say that just to make the point that that by definition, Jesus had to personally make those claims and then do the miracles which demonstrated the truth of his claim to be speaking for God. And, and it's a huge job. And when we go to Galilee, I'll make so much of that as we drive across the beautiful, beautiful land of Galilee, and you can just imagine all the villages and the, the cities and so on, all the places that Jesus would have had to go. And, uh, but my point is that that that... Capernaum was perfectly situated because you see Capernaum, uh, Capernaum, this Galilee, the area just basically west of the Sea of Galilee, Galilee was the domain of Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas had made Capernaum the, the, the place, the receipt of customs. Remember there was a, a collector by the name of Matthew or Levi who was sitting at the receipt of customs there in Capernaum. And what that meant is that if you've got, and, and one thing you've got to understand here, oh, don't get lost in this, but we'll spend a lot of time on this in Israel. But what you've got to understand is that trade had exploded. And there was just constant every single day. And, and, and all the trade, almost virtually so much of the, the great proportion of the international trade in that day was funneled right through Israel. God shaped the earth to make sure this would happen. And as they came down from the north, perhaps coming from the east in, in, in Mesopotamia or from the north in Europe or Asia, and now they come down, they want to get down to Africa, perhaps to Egypt, what they're going to have to do is come around the Sea of Galilee, and then they're going to be forced into the Jezreel Valley. And uh, uh, on the way to the Jezreel Valley, they're going to pass Capernaum. They have to because they have to pay the tax. And so, the, and, and, and one nice thing, one, one, one dynamic of that is, Jesus will never have to worry that the, the roads are bad because he's going to use those roads to saturate the land. But all the roads are kept in good shape getting into Capernaum because that's where you've got to go with your caravan, with your whatever you've got, whatever size trade uh, you know, group you've got. So I, I, and so Capernaum was the perfect place. And as I say, he moved his family there. That's huge. He brought his family. It's explicit. And we have him interacting with his family in Capernaum. So he brought them with them there. That's because he had, by now, he is given, he's, he's overseeing this family. But the second reason, I like to stop on this real quickly. I think there's an apologetic strategy. And, and because, think about this. It is absolutely stunning when you read the Gospels, the proportion of miracles, Jesus' miracles, which are explicitly said to have happened in Capernaum. Now, now, all right, here's a quiz. What are the three cities in which Jesus did most of his mighty works in Galilee? One of them is Capernaum, obviously. All right, the other two are Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now, here's an interesting 
reality, and I, I always appeal to this to demonstrate the very, very selective nature of the Gospels, how many miracles are actually recorded as having, in Chor as having happened in Chorazin? The answer is none. As a matter of fact, the only time Chorazin even mentioned in the Gospels is when Jesus curses it because it was one of the cities in which he did most of his mighty works. And the other city is Bethsaida, and there's one miracle, Mark chapter 8, which is done outside of Bethsaida. But, but uh, on the other hand, so many miracles are recorded as having happened in Capernaum. Now, I think there is a very simple logistic reason for that, and that is that Jesus made that his home. And you remember that not very far into Jesus' public ministry, and you can imagine, I mean, this makes all the sense in the world, people were bringing their sick from other countries. So if you've come a long way with your sick child or your, 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 your lame uh, brother or whatever it is, and you, you're now, now Jesus is often out on those, on those preaching tours, but you're not going to try and follow him. He didn't got a GPS or whatever. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to Capernaum and wait for him to come home. And... That's why again and again, we're going to see it in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus does come home, there are so many people, he can't even go into town to eat because of all the people. So now all these people come and Jesus heals. And, and understand this, that the gospel is, the gospels, the stories are absolutely explicit. When Jesus, during this period of Jesus' ministry, if you got to Jesus, he healed you. I always say he didn't put some sort of faithometer in your head and see if you had enough faith to deserve this. None of that. Now, he never healed crowds. He never said, everybody go home, you're healed. You had to get to him. Imagine what this meant for crowd control. But the point is that Jesus would come back and there'd be these seasons of miracles. And, uh, and, and, and now here's the point. Here's where I'm taking you. Uh, I, I think there is such deliberate intent in this because, again... All right, let me just tell you an imaginary story. And, I, and, and honest to goodness, perhaps someday we'll be in Israel together and we'll stand on Mount Harbel and we'll look down and I'll tell you the same story. But I like to put it this way. That imagine that you are part of one of those caravans. And by the way, the way you travel internationally was to attach yourself to a caravan. It was very unsafe to travel any other way. The caravans always had a small security force. And so you would pay the wagon master. Maybe you don't even have anything to trade. You just want to get from here to there. And so you attach yourself to a to a, uh, to a uh, caravan, and you're traveling along, and in the course of time, you come around the Sea of Galilee, and, and you're rather forced into the little city of Capernaum, and the wagon master comes to you, and he says, now listen, i got to go pay the taxes. It's going to take me a little while. Ah, why don't you just relax somewhere? And so you go, and you find a place under a tree, and you got your lemonade or whatever in the world, and you're sitting there, and some of the locals are close by, and while you're sitting there, this family this, this man comes running around the corner and he's jumping and singing and he's saying, I can walk, I can walk. And he's got to, breaks those crutches, throws them in the air and he goes running off. And you say to the guy next to you, what's that all about? And he says, now listen, you're not going to believe this, but there's this man, his name is Yeshua. He grew up in Nazareth, just a few miles away, brought his family here a few months ago and he's a healer. And if you get to him, he heals you. And you say, because people in that day were no more gullible or free critical than we are. And you're going to say, nah, I don't believe that. And he's going to say, now listen, I knew that guy. I know that guy all my life. He's been lame. He's born lame. And I watched. I mean, that's, that's a, and then just to make my point, maybe a little while later, you're sitting there wondering what's going on. And his family comes. they got this little baby. They're thrown in there. She can see. She can see. And you're just all saying, Again, what's going on? I know that family, the baby was born blind. Now, here's the thing. 
you're going to get, join that caravan, and you're going to go on your way. Maybe you're going to go down to Alexandria. That's where you're headed. And maybe four or five years later, a guy named Thomas is going to show up there in Alexandria. Now I've got to make it a little more. So maybe it's 10 years later because he's got the Gospel of Matthew with him. And he starts to read this, this account of this man who did all of these miracles. And all the people there in Alexandria are saying, what a bunch of silliness. That can't happen. Ah, see the point? You're there saying, I was there. I think Jesus moving to Capernaum was a very, very clever and deliberate and an important way to salt and pepper the entire Mediterranean world. Because there was no place in the world to which a caravan was not on its way when it passed through Capernaum. And now you've got all these people, because so much of that miraculous activity takes right there. All of these people. And I, I believe, I'm convinced that God was very, very careful, as I say, to kind of salt and pepper the entire Mediterranean world with eyewitnesses to the miracle-working power of the Nazarene. So when the gospel makes its way there in the, per, in, in, a, in a form of a gospel written by a man named Matthew, it's, 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 it's the more... Incredible. That makes sense to you? All right, but that's a bit of an aside. Forgive me. But let me take it, uh, and we can do this very quickly. I talked about it this morning. But one of the most important, I'd say one of the most important, but a very interesting interchange is when Jesus comes back to that village. We talk about this Luke 4. He comes back early in his Galilean ministry. He's invited to read. He's handed the Isaiah scroll. is what we talked about this morning. And, uh, and, uh, of course, everybody is so amazed, and he makes the claim to be the Messiah. Now, I, I didn't talk about this morning. I'm going to say it real quickly. One of the ways in which Jesus demonstrates his wisdom, that he is wise as a serpent, is that throughout his ministry, and, and I'm going to tell you, there's a whole, there are three or four discernible heresies built on a misperception of this, and I heard actually a very important preacher preaching one of them just a little while ago, but... but uh, uh, all throughout his ministry, Jesus is careful never to refer to himself as Mashiach. And, and, and out of this, he never uses the word Christ of himself. Now, the one kind of exception is when he's alone with the woman at the well, and she says, I know the Jews believe that the Christ is coming, and he says the one speaking to you is he. He accepts the term Christ. But that's alone in Samaria with that woman. So the point is that Jesus... Now, on the other hand, I said to you before that throughout his ministry, Jesus claims to be the Christ. His twofold claims is he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he doesn't use the term. What he does, because he's so spectacularly clever, is he takes to himself all sorts of Old Testament pictures terms, passages, and so on. Like Isaiah, that's what I'm talking about here. When he reads Isaiah 61, he just turns to him and says, this day is the scripture fulfilled. Now, he hasn't used the word Christ, but he has claimed to be the Christ because everybody knows that's what that, does that make sense to you? What is Jesus' favorite title of himself? I talked about it. Son of man, 81 times. Where did he get son of man? Flat out of Daniel chapter 7 where the Ancient of Days, God the Father, takes his throne, and then there is a net throne next to him, and one like unto a son of man takes the throne. And, and no Jewish person in the world would be at all confused. They would understand immediately that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. But think about it. So he claims to be the son of man. And, and, and the reason for this, I didn't make clear, the reason is because very early on, Jesus' Jewish enemies 
were anxious to be rid of him, but because of his popularity, they had to get the Romans involved. And in order to get the Romans involved, they had to make the case that this man is Messiah means king. And there's no room for pretender kings in Rome. So they want to be able, and they do. That's exactly what they do in the, in the, in the final analysis. They're in Jerusalem. They go to Pilate, and they try and make the case that Jesus is a seditionist. Now, we'll talk about that another time. But, but, but Jesus is careful not to arm his enemies. That makes sense to you? So he avoids the word, but he takes these titles to himself. That, 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 and that's exactly what's, what's happening here in, in Luke chapter 4. But, and by the way, just imagine that if, if, if Jesus' enemies go, for instance, to Pilate, and they say, this guy's dangerous. He's a threat to Rome. Why do you say that? He claims to be the son of man. What's Pilate going to say? Me too. You know, what's that all about? You know? So it, it really is very, very deliberate. But anyway, Jesus claims, makes that claim, and everybody's excited. Now, let me just say that, uh, and i got to be quick with this, but Jesus throughout his ministry, and this is so important to the record, had a, a, a really clever and, and effective strategy to test what seemed to be the willingness of this or that person or this or that crowd to accept him. And very simply, he would, and in, in theology they'll say he would speak hard words. But they don't mean hard to understand. They mean hard to obey. Words that are going to cost you something. I like to say he would put his finger on your most sensitive spiritual nerve. Not to be mean, but he's testing your claim to be willing to give him your allegiance. So do you get to heaven by selling everything? You have? Of course not. But that rich young ruler, it was clear. He came and he, he insisted that he wanted to follow Jesus. And so Jesus said, all right, here's the test. Sell everything you have. Uh, it's again and again. Oftentimes it's the Pharisees. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is uh, you got this huge crowd. The Sermon on the Mount was preached, according to Luke, if you make a parallel to Luke, which I do, uh, it was preached at one of those seasons where Jesus had been off. He comes home and there's this huge crowd and they can't even. So he goes up on his hillside. He begins to teach. And, 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 and the whole point of the sermon is in Matthew 5, verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never glimpse the kingdom of God. And the whole sermon is they say unto you, I say unto you. They say unto you, I say unto you. Now, there's a lot here, and I'd love to explore it with you. But the fact is, what Jesus is doing is testing the willingness of those people to follow him by making a very difficult and legitimate demand. And that is, you've got to abandon the Pharisees in order to follow me. Does that make sense to you? Well, let me bring you back to Luke chapter 4, because I think this plays a little bit into our next, our, our, our next uh, uh, episode, if you don't mind. Because, now again, they, the, the, the Jesus' family, he has moved them to Capernaum. But all of their roots, all of their friends, all their relationships and so on are right here in Nazareth. And, and they're you know, they, they, very close to these people. But Remember when, 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 when uh, uh, John said that, it was, that, that Jesus of Nazareth and, and uh, Thomas said, uh, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember that? And this is, there's a lot behind that. But I think what's mostly at stake is this, that Nazareth was a very, I mean, five, 600 people probably clustered around some synagogues and so on there on the Nazareth Ridge, but very close to Nazareth was a small Roman outpost. And archaeology has discovered this. And the reason for that outpost was because Nazareth is 
on a ridge right above the Valley of Jezreel. And the Valley of Jezreel is the most important crossroads in the International Highway. So they could monitor all this caravan traffic coming through. So they had a little, and, and I think probably what's at stake is this. All right, let me, I'm, I'm going to confuse you. Because what happens is, well, let me, let me take you there in, in Luke chapter 4. What happens is that after Jesus uh, reads the passage and, and claims to be the fulfillment and so on, then, and all the people are amazed, but you'll remember, uh, Jesus says, and I want to jump one verse, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, uh, no prophet is accepted. Here it is. I tell you truly, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but uh, God sent Elijah to a Gentile widow. And there were many lepers in the days of Elisha, but God sent Elisha to a, uh, to, a, to a Syrian, to a Gentile leper. Remember that? And what happens? The next verse. When they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. They wanted to throw him off of a cliff. Now, what's going on here? You ask, so I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> what's going on? I think it's exactly what Jesus does again and again. By reason of the fact that you had that little outpost of Roman soldiers, they were mercenaries, they didn't talk the language. You can imagine that they were drunk half the time, that they were walking around with the sword on their side, and, 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 and they made life miserable for Nazarenes, for the Nazarenes. And I think that may be why the attitude is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They've got to rub shoulders with the Roman soldiers all the time. And I think probably what happened was, I'm putting two and two together, maybe I'm getting 22, you decide. But I think what happened probably was that the Nazarenes developed a wicked, inordinate hatred of all things Gentile. And Jesus knew it. He had grown up in that, in that atmosphere. And so now he makes the claim to be Messiah. And everybody's excited. It's, I'm sure they're not a real deep understanding of it, but everybody's excited. And then Jesus says, all right, uh, let me tell you what I'm going to demand of you. God loves the Gentiles. That quick, they want to throw them off a cliff. Does that make sense to you? Now, what I'm saying with regard to our study is that how might Jesus' brothers and sisters have felt about this? That all of a sudden, the people they know the best and grew up with and so on are angry with Jesus, their, their half-brother and so on. Uh, let, me, let me take you one more, uh, a couple more, but the next event to which I appeal is in Mark chapter 3. And again, this is in the Galilee ministry. I hope I'm not confused. I, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping from one thing to the other. But the next one of the events where Jesus encounters his family most, most dramatically is in Mark chapter 3. And uh, listen, I, again, there's a lot of data here. There are a lot of data here. But this is part of what is called by students of the life of Jesus, Jesus' busy day or Jesus' long day. And if you take the four Gospels and trace them, and I've got a chart in there where I show you how this all works and so on, and you trace them, you find out that this is a remarkably busy day. This is the day uh, it begins in the record with the unpardonable sin, with the, the people. And this is so huge. I say the unpardonable sin. What happened on that day is that Jesus was somewhere in Galilee. He healed a man who was both blind and dumb. Isaiah says specifically that when Messiah comes, you open the eyes of the blind, loose the tongue of the dumb, and the people turned to the Pharisees and they asked this question. It's absolutely explicit in the Greek. I'm just telling you the story. It's Matthew chapter 12. But they asked this question. 
this isn't the son of David, right? You see what they're saying? They're looking for an excuse for disbelief. Now, you have to understand, and one of the very legitimate questions that's very seldom asked about the life of Jesus in the ministry is how did he get away with going about claiming to be king for all of those months? And the, the most important answer is he was wildly popular with the people. And, 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 where, and, and, and wherever he was, Rome had divided its empire, its empire up into several, you know, all these governing units. And over every province, whatever it was called, there was some senior officer. And that officer had two responsibilities. And that was, number one, collect the taxes. And number two, keep the peace. And Jesus was so wildly popular. Everyone, he had huge crowds. So his enemies, both Jewish and Roman, feared that if they tried to arrest him, and Jesus made much of this, he, he used this as a strategy, that, that, that they would have a riot. And if they had a riot, then Romans would have to come and bring extra troops, and they were going to find out who started this, and heads were going to roll. So, so the, the important thing is that when Jesus hears the people say, this man's not the son of David, right? We don't know what to do with this miracle. We're in trouble here, but we've decided you're right. He's, he's an imposter, but what do we do with this? And they came up with the absolutely wicked and insane Beelzebub explanation, and the people went for it. Now, there's a lot going on there, but the primary dynamic in that, in that drama with regard to the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, is that Jesus realizes the people are starting to turn against him. That same day, he begins to speak in parables. And when the disciples ask, why are you teaching this way? He says, because to you it's given to know the, the, uh, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to them it's not given. And those who have some, I'm going to take it away. Those parables of Matthew 13, and, and a lot of times we're, we go to and say, Jesus was such a marvelous teacher and he would use these illustrations that were so helpful. Those parables are deliberately and effectively designed to confuse people. You got to understand, too, by the way, Jesus told the parable publicly. He interpreted the disciples privately. And, uh, you know, I like to say, forgive me for stopping on this over much, but, but imagine if, and this is the way it happens. Jesus quiets a massive crowd. He's been doing miracles and he's heard them. Uh, he, you know, he warned them, what you're, this is dangerous to reject what the Spirit of God is trying to teach you. That's unpardonable. But by the same token, what's important is he had heard the people say, he's not the son of David, right? We need an excuse. And they went for the Beelzebub thing. So now he comes out and he says, I have a story to tell you. A man went out to sow, cast his seed. Some of it fell on the road and it was carried away. Some on thorny ground, some on shallow ground, some on good ground did real well. Thank you. You know what? That, that's, that's a story to go. Here, let me tell you a story. A man got up in the morning, had his breakfast, went to work. Had a good day at work, came home, had his dinner, read a book, went to bed. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You say, well, I don't know what to do with that. Well, that's exactly that story. And, and Jesus is going to explain it to his disciples but the, I think, and, and it's interesting, it's in that context that his brothers, it's on this same day that his brothers come to think him, uh, take him home, thinking him to be mad. And by the way, I'll make one other connection that maybe won't work for you, but 
I think in many ways, David, David's life, King David's life, does anticipate the life of Messiah. And you remember when David mistakenly thought he could find refuge in Gath? And he realized this ain't so good, and he drooled in his beard. He feigned madness. And I think Jesus is very possibly, very creatively feigning, not so much madness, but innocuous. Well, I can't be that dangerous. What's that all about, you know? And uh, now I could, I'd love to walk you through the whole parable story. But Mark tells that story, and, and he's, I, I want to pick one thing out. I'll give you all that background, but I want to pick one thing out, and that is that in Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Then the multitude came together again, so they couldn't so much as eat bread. This is, again, one of these seasons where he comes home, and he's got this great crowd waiting for a miracle. But then it says this, When his own people... Now, that's a good translation, but if you go down to verse 21 you discover very explicitly that his own people are his brothers and his mother. And I'm just going to put it on the table right now. I am really confused about what Mary was doing there, and I think very possibly she was dragged along. But nonetheless, the point is his own people, that is his family, and this is Capernaum. He's come back to Capernaum, and his own people came, went out to lay hold of him, where they said he is out of his mind. Now, very interestingly, and I think poignantly, Mark, and Mark is Peter's telling, Mark is writing down what Peter says. So this is Peter's telling of the gospel. He was there, and interestingly enough, he sandwiches the unpartable sin. Now, I've already talked about that, and when we talk about the unpartable sin, that's always the question we ask. What is the unpartable I don't want to go there right now. The narrative is basically about the people saying, we know he's not the son of David, but we got to have an excuse here. That's what they're asking for. So Mark tells the story of, Peter tells the story of, the, the family coming and taking, uh, to, uh, want to take him home, and then he tells the story of this horribly, horribly melancholy, heartbreaking. This would have been so disappointing. Now, Jesus knew from the scriptures that the, his, this nation was not, this generation was not going to receive him, but he loved him. He came on to his own. You know, that little verse in John 1:11, we just kind of miss the, the pathos in that verse. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And so Jesus' heart must have been just broken to hear the people begin to turn on him like this. But then Mark picks the story up in verse 31, and he says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him. He had gone into a house, and they said, Look, your mother your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here, are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, my brother, and my sister, and my mother. Now, folks, two things. Number one, do you think Jesus said that with a dry cheek? Just think about it. Your own brothers, whom you've invested in, you love desperately, but they, they've come, and it, it really kind of embarrassingly, threatened to take you home because they think you're mad. But what you need to understand, and I'm going to do this very quickly, but I'll give you the verses. You can find them yourself. But, but what Jesus is doing here, and I want you to think about this, is living up to a very, very important Old Testament ethic. And that, that Old Testament ethical responsibility is really, is really well expressed in narrative form in, in the Levites. Because here are three, pass, three Old Testament passages to think about. Number one is when two sons of Jacob slaughter the Shechemites. Remember that? And those two sons were Simeon and Levi. Are you with me on this? Now, as a result, Jacob said, 
when we get to the land, you are not to get a portion. Ah. On the other hand, the next biblical narrative is Exodus 32. And now Moses is up on the mountain, and Aaron has, the people have, uh, you know, they built a golden altar, and uh, they, they, the Bible says they, I like this, they sat down to eat and rose up to play. And we're not talking croquet here, right? Okay, so all of this wickedness, and Moses comes down, God tells him, do you know, I love it, do you know, gentlemen, how many times has your wife called it, do you know what your son did today? You know? So God says to Moses, do you know what your people have done? And I think Moses is probably saying, oh, wait a minute here, I'm not in this alone. But, but uh, nonetheless, he goes down, he finds them involved in this wickedness, and he says, this is Exodus 32, verse 26, he says, who is on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, take your your, uh, matter of fact, I have it here. I'll say it better if I, uh, if, if, who is on the Lord's side? If you are on the Lord's side, here it is right here uh, in the yellow. Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, his companion, his neighbor. So if it's your own family, if it's your dear friend, if it's your neighbor, put him to death. And of course, it's Levi who answers that call? Now, the third passage. So I'm saying that Levi had been told, along with Simeon, that he wasn't going to get a portion. And Simeon never does get a portion. He's got a few cities in Judah. But Levi, on the other hand, though he doesn't get a portion, he's made the tribe that would serve in the temple. And so the pain of not having a portion of land is you don't have any place to grow your crops. But the Levites never had to worry about that. Because they lived, so to a remarkable degree, the curse placed upon Levi was lifted. And we're told in Exodus 33, I have them here, Exodus 33, and don't get me started on the Urim and Thummim. I, uh, Bart mentioned that the other day. I did do my, my uh, dissertation on the Urim and Thummim. Here he reverses it for poetic reason. But, but notice what Moses, these are the blessings that Moses speaks on the 12 tribes as he is dying. And he says, uh, uh, of Levi, he said, let your thumim and your urim. Now, that, the, the urim and thumim were simply a set of, simply a, a very important uh, uh, oracle which was given to the high priest so that the, 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 that, that the, the leader of the, of the nation could consult with Yahweh. I like to say the urim and thumim was the red telephone. And, uh, and the priest carried it around, and when the king needed to consult with Yahweh, whoop, and he got a message directly from King Yahweh. So he says, let your thumim and your urim be with you, holy one, whom you tested at Massah and with whom you contended at the martyrs of Meribah, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children. For they observed your word and kept your covenant. Now, folks, think about what's at stake here. And, and, and listen, and I say this on your sheet, but God forbid that there should come a time in your life at any stage where you really have to make a choice between those whom you love the best in this life and the God whom you serve. And, and, and uh, I'm not going to get into it at all. And I will say we have three kids. They're all grown. They're all well married. They love the Lord. They're raising beautiful, spectacular, genius grandchildren. But there's been some adventure along the way. 
Let me tell you. And uh, there was a night when I had to put my son out of the house. And it wasn't, it wasn't angry. It wasn't wicked. But, but I, I'm not going to get into it. But my point is, uh, and, and as he stood there, and I had warned him, we wrote a contract. I wrote him a contract. I said, on this day, if these things don't happen, you've got to grow up. You gotta, and, uh, but I remember him standing there and saying, Dad, where am I going to sleep tonight? I don't know, Jonah. We had this agreement. You, know, you figure it out. You're gonna, you, I'm not going to underwrite your carelessness anymore. I don't know if it was wise or not. Jonah thanks me for it to this day. But I'll tell you, I'm not sure where he slept that night, but I'll tell you somebody who didn't sleep that night. And, 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 and that was much more mild than, than a lot of people encounter. But what I'm saying is, and now I've used a personal illustration, it makes me, uh, I, what, it, what I'm saying is that I can't tell you what it meant to me to realize my Savior knew what that was. He made a choice. And that's exactly what he's doing. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters and so on? It's you. And I'm going to say again, Jesus didn't do that with a dry cheek, for heaven's sakes. But he knows what it is to make that kind of horribly... To, if, if it comes to the place where you have... To, the, the question before the house is your allegiance to your God. And if you're going to follow your God and be loyal to him, you're going to have to turn your back at some level on those whom you love best. I hope it never happens. But when it does, regardless of whether it does, know this, Jesus has been there. Does that make sense to you? Such a poignant moment. All right, back to the notes. And with this, we can be... Uh, well, in John 7, I won't, I won't spend any more time, uh, any time with it, but in John 7, and we've kind of traversed the ministry of Jesus here because... In, in John chapter 7, uh, the, uh, this is uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is six months before Jesus died. Jesus is going to die at the Feast of Passover on April 3rd, 33 AD. But now it's late uh, October of 32 AD, the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, Jesus is in Galilee. And you know the story. His disciples say, aren't you going to go to the Feast of Tabernacles? And, uh, and, and, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to go. My time is not now. And, uh, and, and, and then they set out. And all I want you to, to catch is the simple statement, John chapter 7 and verse, uh, I thought it was 2, but it must be later. Oh, here it is. Uh, it simply says that his brothers, help me find it. What verse am I looking for? Right there, in verse 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Now, I, I said again, and I kind of adumbrated this earlier, but I, I, I can see where it would have been hard. I mean, this would have been, you, you, you grew up with this boy. He was the worst goody two-shoes, and he was a hard act to follow. And, and, uh, but good heavens, it's your brother. And now the day comes where he announces he's also God coming to flesh. That's not easy for heaven's sakes. But, and I think there were probably other things at stake, but at any rate, for whatever set of reasons, his brothers were unbelievers. And uh, for that reason, from there I want to take you to, uh, uh, well, on, on the notes, where am I here? Forget which way to go. And this is the last one. Uh, Jesus, no, it's not quite, but Jesus on the cross is careful to care for his mother. Now listen, there is not another scene in the Gospels which is more gut-wrenchingly, uh, painfully 
uh, emotionally laden than this. But uh, you're familiar that I'll go to John 19, where we're simply told that, uh, and, and this is John's telling of the, of the uh, crucifixion, obviously, and, and as one of the words of the cross, John tells us that Jesus, I'll get there and, 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 uh, and read it to you. It says, uh, uh, this is after Jesus has been brought out and John's telling and placed on the cross. And it says, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, and, and this is probably another comma, uh, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. But at any rate, and when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. So here's the scene. And, and let me just background this a little bit. Uh, crucifixion had been fine-tuned by Rome as a very, very effective means of putting down sedition, rebellion, pretender king. Now, let me say, I haven't got time to develop this. It's hugely important. But you'll hear sometimes that Jesus died. It's said this way, and, and it could be right, but I think it's a little careless. He died as a seditionist. Sometimes you'll hear that he died having been convicted of sedition. In point of fact, he, had, he died having been exonerated in the most deliberate, unmistakable way as a seditionist. Five different times, the only man on earth who is qualified and who was deputized and who actually interrogated Jesus, the only one qualified to give that verdict, Pilate, five different times says the man is innocent. And, and there are so many indicators. On the other hand, by reason of the pressure, and this is so big, although Jesus died having been exculpated of sedition, in the most dramatic ways. Not only just his statements, but several elements, the fact with the, the titulus, the, uh, the fact that his body was given over to burial. You didn't do that with a seditionist. Uh, just in every way. The fact that, that Pilate's wife even says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Uh, you know, I, I, again and again, the point is made in, in the narrative, in the historical record, that Jesus was not a seditionist. But by reason of the pressure... Jesus died the death designed for a seditionist. Now, this is unspeakably important because three different times Jesus said that it was imperative that he die by being lifted up. As Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When I am lifted up, John 8, then you will know that I am the Son, that I speak for the Father. And then John 12, I, if I am lifted up, will draw him into myself. And John says specifically in John 12, that he was speaking about the kind of death he would die. And so it was imperative that he die as a seditionist. That he die the death that was designed for a seditionist. Does that make sense to you? It's, it's an important, it's important. And let me just finish this. I'm, I'm going to be done. Uh, but uh, why is that? You know, when... Why was it important that Jesus die as a seditionist? Having been convicted, all right? I'm committing my own carelessness here, but having, having been exonerated, but die the death that is designed for a seditionist. You know, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he tarried two days. 
Remember that? Because he loved him. He tarried two days. And therefore, I think he contrived by spirit, Holy Spirit direction to show up on the fourth day. And we know it was the fourth day. Why the fourth day? Because the tomb, by custom and rabbinical law, had to be closed on the end of the third day. So for several hours, that corpse had laid in there uh, in that little tiny tomb, and it was rotting, that is, the corpse was, and the smell was awful. And Martha says that, don't roll that back. Now, the point is that when they rolled the stone back, you can absolutely bet them that that death stench came rolling out of there, and you couldn't. And the point is that you can't counterfeit that death stench. So Jesus tarries. You see, the raising of Lazarus to mortal life was a dependable miracle only to the de degree that we know for certain he was dead. And you can't counterfeit. Well, what the death stench was to Lazarus, the sword in the side, was to Jesus. Because you see, as I say, the Romans developed crucifixion not primarily as a means of executing the seditionist, but as a means of putting down the sedition. And therefore, the Romans demanded that there be public, undeniable, physically visible evidence of death before a crucified man came down off the cross. And, and there was a protocol that if a man was taken down off the cross, and just inadvertently, there was still just the last breath of life, and there was the flutter of an eyelid or whatever, and then he died on the ground. All four soldiers assigned to that duty were immediately put on crosses. That's how serious Rome was that the man does not come down off a cross until he's dead. And I keep saying, you didn't have to be there to see the blood in the water that day. Once you heard that the man died on a Roman cross, you know he did not come down until he was dead. Does that make sense to you? So what I'm saying to you, and I'm off, off, off the story here, but I'm just saying that Jesus died a death that Rome had clearly fine-tuned as a means of putting down sedition. And, and they wanted it to be public. They wanted it to be gruesome and cruel. They wanted it to be lingering. And so the victim was always placed on a cross just outside a gate. Now, the reason for the gate is it's a bottleneck. And the Romans wanted everybody to see this happen. This is, this is, like I said, it's about putting down whatever seditious impulses are simmering in your heart. And so, and so, uh, and, 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 and the, the cross was always constructed so that the victim was high enough that people could see him over one another's heads. So as you're being crammed into the bottleneck, which is the gate, and maybe you, climb, you, you push way over to the side and you take your skirt and you wrap it around the kid's ears and you try and scurry through, but you're going to be able to see just on the rise, not a high hill, because the other thing is, and this, again, they're, they're, I, I think it's fair to say historically that, that the, the, the cross, the victim had to be high enough that the people could see him, but low enough that the dogs could nibble because that was part of the ignominy. And the other thing that would happen is that the birds would begin to peck at the eyes and so on as the victim hanged there. And, 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 and they wanted crucifixion. Now, this was different in Israel because of their protocols, but generally a crucified man would last two days anyway on the cross, well into his second day after his crucifixion. And that's what they wanted. They wanted it to be a gruesome public display of what happens to you when you raise your hand against Rome. All right, so what's that got to do with anything? And now, what I've told you, I think, is historically absolutely defensible. 
Here's a little conjecture. But clearly, Mary was at the foot of the cross. And we're told that in many cases, the Roman soldiers assigned to that duty might just look the other way if somebody wanted to just step out of the crowd or some friend of the poor wretch and take a long swish and swish away the, the birds and, and keep the, the animals from nibbling. See, I wonder if Mary hasn't assumed that. He's, she's at the foot of the cross. She looks down and sees Mary at the foot of the cross. Now, he looks somewhere in the crowd and he sees John the Apostle. And he calls John out. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple, he said to his mother, here it is again, woman. He's not going to be there to be her dutiful son any longer. Woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now, I, I'm, I, I, I just want you to contemplate rather carefully the pathos of this moment. And, and I give you a quote from, uh, on your notes, I give you a quote from, uh, I think it's Bishop Ryle, and then also whoever it is, I can't remember. But uh, yeah, Ryle and then Calvin. But just at that moment, as he, number one is, now this is while the sky is still light, this is before uh, the sky grows dark and he's forsaken by the Father for those three hours. But nonetheless, as he hangs there in that cross, he has a heart which is sensitive to his mother. And, and let me say that Jesus' concern is not financial. Some people say that. Well, there's this whole conjectural line. I'm talking about, but, but there's those whole kind of silly conjectural line of reasoning which says that John was wealthy. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't, he didn't work for the high priest and, and so on. John was just a fisherman. But, but listen, Jesus had able-bodied brothers. And it's biblically... My family's not here. I'd really pound away at this. It's a biblical reality that those, 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 those children were responsible to care for her, and Jesus would have been underwriting their carelessness if he were to turn. No, his concern is spiritual. His concern, he knows that there's going to be awful persecution. He knows that the city has risen up in rebellion against him and so on, even here. And so this city which welcomed him as king on Sunday is now crying for his crucifixion and Jesus is hanging on a cross and out of a heart of concern for his mother, he turned, and he knows that his brothers are unbelieving. Now, let me go back to something we started with. I said that, yes, there were moments when the Spirit of God directed Jesus to know supernaturally enabled, I would say. But did he live that way constantly? No, he did not. And the fact is, we know that his brothers are going to become believers. If Jesus had known that, I would argue he wouldn't have turned her over. And I will also argue strongly that in point of fact, after his brother became believers, they once again welcomed their mother home and she lived her life out with her family. But Jesus hung there, not only knowing that he was going to take the sins of the world upon himself, but knowing that his own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, I suspect you have family, loved ones who are, who are lost. I suspect your heart breaks for them. I can guarantee you Jesus knows what that is. And his heart for his brother. Now, the last section in the notes, just real quickly, I'll just say it and we'll be done. Did I miss a page there somewhere? Is that his brothers are going to become believers. 
And after his resurrection, we have this rather incidental but thrilling note in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to James. And of course, James is going to become a leader in the, in the, in the church uh, in Jerusalem and is going to write an epistle in the New Testament. Another brother, Jude, is going to write an epistle. And so, bless God, Jesus' brothers are going to come to faith. And I think it's because of the marvelous life of consistent love and testimony that he lived out before his brothers. They finally do come to faith. But I say once again, I think Jesus on the cross had no way to know that. And so his heart is heavy for them and his heart is sensitive for his mother. So, put a ribbon on it. <laughs> Jesus lived your life before you. There is simply no challenge no trial, no heartache you will ever endure, but what your Savior has been there. You could live a thousand lives. You'll never know the temptation that Jesus knew to turn back from the cross. And therefore, we have a high priest who can be genuinely, bottomlessly, lovingly touched with the feeling of our limitations, our temptations. Amen and amen. All right. Thank you for the time together. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we love you, and uh, we are stunned. We're amazed. The whole idea that, that the Word became flesh, that, you took up, that, you, that, that your Son took upon himself genuine humanity, and then that he lived a life so carefully recorded with all of the drama and the difficulty that life includes and more. Father, it's, it's absolutely stunning, but we thank you that you have, and, and we worship you as God, and we acknowledge that, that, that there is that which you are able to do, which you have done, which we can't fully comprehend, but we can celebrate, we can adore what we can't fully comprehend. So we thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the life that he lived. Thank you for the example he has become to us. And thank you so much, Father, that now we have one who can, who can, rep, who can plead for us before you as, as, as one who really understands the life that we live. Thank you again for what you're doing in this place. Continue to go before this church and all the ministries represented here, and we'll give you the glory and the gratitude in Christ's name. Amen.